The reading of the scriptures found in Genesis chapter 15, reading verses 12 to 21. I invite your uh, reverent uh, hearing of God's worth, and as always, may God give us grace to both to read and to hear in faith. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me for another time of prayer. Father, again, we bow before you to worship our great God and Creator, to worship uh, the Son, the beloved Son of the Father who has saved us by His death upon the cross, and by his act of obedience, doing all the things that the Father asked him to do uh, so that he might confer upon us his righteousness. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the giver of new life, and the one who guides us uh, through this life. Thank you for your fatherly care, your love before the foundation of the world. in all things you do for us, from the greatest to the very least, providing our daily bread. We thank you for this. We acknowledge it comes from the hand of a good and gracious and loving God. Uh, We ask you to bless our our, uh, contributions uh, that we return from what you give us for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and the welfare of those we serve. Pray for those among our congregation who may be sick, in need of medical attention. Bless all that is done for their bodily health and welfare. May they be in good health, that it is well with their souls. We pray also for those who long to be here but can't because of, uh, again, infirmity or age. uh, Draw near to them. Um, Bless our homes. We entreat you for our children and grandchildren remembering the words uh, that the promises are to you and to your children. Oh God, be gracious to them. Uh, Cause them to be born again by the Spirit of God and uh, watch over and guide and protect them, both young and old. Protect us all from the dangers of this fallen world, particularly the ones that would endanger our souls. Bless us as a congregation to be salt and light in our community and may all that we do uh, in worship and in service to one another and to the community be done in faith and in love. 
Now, Father, bless your word to us and bless Phil as he uh, proclaims your word from the ancient book of Genesis, but it is active and living. May it go forth in power and accomplish every purpose for which you send it to us today. And as we meet with you in the word, may we look with expectation to meet with Christ in a most spiritual way in the celebration of his table. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. Uh, last week we uh, spoke uh, particularly from Genesis chapter 15, 6, a great uh, Old Testament doctrine of justification that Abraham uh, believed God and it was reckoned to him. God charged it to his account, the very righteousness of God is a basis of his salvation. And of course, that text is picked up, uh, Book of Romans, Book of Galatians, all throughout the New Testament is a, a profound pillar of the truth that upholds the church and upholds uh, each and every one of us as we understand the majesty of the fact that Christ imputed uh, his righteousness, the merits of his obedience to our account as the basis, sole entire basis for our salvation. What we did not address, that uh, Lord willing is addressed this morning, is uh, what causes it, uh, what sets it in motion. And uh, we see this, of course, uh, uh, in the text this morning, particularly as it relates to the great Abrahamic covenant that in the New Testament merges into the new covenant inaugurated by Christ. But what's the causality of both of those covenants and uh, redemption? If not the eternal covenant of redemption established in eternity past? Well, it's the grace of God. It's the marvelous grace of God. And now we're going to watch God alone set it in motion from both testaments. First, the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, beginning in verses 12 to 16, uh, there's a signing of the covenant uh, that begins with a rehearsal. So Abraham is uh, prepared uh, for the signing uh, ceremony. Um, verse 11, birds of prey come down upon the carcasses and Abram drives them away. Uh, the birds were unclean and Abram doesn't want the sacrificial animals contaminated. So it's a, uh, if you will, portending the purity of the majesty of Christ who had no contamination whatsoever. He was perfect from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, uh, the entirety of the perfections of the great Christ. Symbolically, it's here in the driving of the unclean uh, uh, birds away to keep the uh, sacrifice uncontaminated. Uh, then at sunset, a deep sleep falls upon Abram. Uh, this uh, word for deep sleep is uh, used in uh, Genesis chapter 2, uh, that God uh, puts Adam to sleep, uh, operates on him, extracts a rib, and forms Eve. So perhaps uh, one of the first uh, events of divine anesthesia. 
uh, totally knocked out. If you've ever had surgery like I have, and I certainly won't talk about it much this morning, lest you uh, drift off in uh, sleep, uh, but you know you're so thankful that uh, you're totally knocked out. You don't remember hardly anything that went on or feel anything, except maybe uh, measure the healing process, but subject of a different time and place. Uh, the text implies here that deep sleep falls upon Abraham. If we understand the happening from Genesis chapter 2, uh, implies supernatural agency. God puts him to sleep. And along with the deep sleep, terror and darkness fall upon him, pretending trouble. It uh, also suggests that, uh, I think there's a deeper issue here. I'm just suggesting it, that uh, Abram is a fearful, uh, that the promise will go unfulfilled. Because God has been rehearsing this promise all along the way, and nothing has happened. And now he's very, very, very old, and so is his wife. And he doesn't own any of the land. He only has a title to it, uh, but he has no possession of it. No, he's fearful. You and I would be fearful. Uh, occasionally we become fearful, do we not? Is Jesus really going to come for me? Uh, am I really going to enter uh, the majesty of the eternal estate? So we, we get afraid. Sometimes uh, the fear uh, goes unchecked and uh, we uh, do some things we ought not to do. But in this case, uh, God has put him to sleep and in the sleep, God reveals to him that the trouble, verses 13 to 14, is a, a reference that you and I know is the future bondage of his descendants in Egypt uh, with the round number of 400 years. Just a rounding of number. Now, I don't know about you, I round numbers all of the time. Uh, not meant to be taken specifically. Uh, Acts chapter 13 uh, 19 uses 450 years. Uh, I will oftentimes take a half and simply round the number up. But whether you do that or not, I'll leave to you. Uh, if you're a CPA, you're probably a little more careful than that. But nonetheless, just the rounding of the number, 400 years in bondage. The fact that God can assign uh, a number is suggestive to me of his sovereignty over the events, uh, including the captivity and then the gloom, uh, thank God that God lifts the gloom. He lifts the fear with the promise that God will judge Egypt, which he does in the plague narratives of uh, Egypt, pardon me, the Exodus, and he will enrich the nation, and the Egyptians will thrust them out and pay them handsomely to leave. Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. So, just suggestive that the uh, ladies get to plunder the jewelry boxes of their uh, Egyptian uh, patrons, and uh, they, they go away with uh, pockets full of, I don't know, uh, gold and silver and uh, different things. Um, uh, but they are enriched because God is fulfilling his promise to Abram. Then in the fourth generation, they return to the land of promise and take it. And individually, God goes from his nation, which means he's going to have a lot of sons and great, great, great grandsons and so forth. But individually, he turns away from the nation to Abram. He'll have a long life. Literally, the Hebrew text is uh, die gray-headed. 
and a prosperous life, he dies in peace. All this means is that God will fulfill the promises of heirs and an inheritance. Uh, a nation is going to be formed with a homeland. And God's going to accomplish it. And God is going to accomplish the Abrahamic covenant. In verses 17 to 29, pardon me, 21, God signs the covenant. Notice, notice one subject. Uh, hey, what's with Abraham? He's in a deep sleep. God's going to sign it alone. I know many of you have uh, signed covenants, contracts, okay? borrow money, uh, go to a title company, uh, you sign, they say, everybody, everybody has a signature on it. Uh, what's unique about this covenant, it's only one signature. So that God is pledging himself as the guarantor. God alone is the guarantor. It's the sole signatory on the covenant. Exclusive of Abram's participation. My friend, uh, that is what grace is. Wait a minute. I thought I had a say in this deal. Surely I have a part. Come on, in salvation I have a part, don't I? Dead men don't take parts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Spiritually dead, of course. So it's the grace of God acting. And the ancient Near East covenants were ratified by participants walking between uh, animals uh, cut. Again, Abraham takes the animals, he cuts them, he separates them. He's put into a sleep and God walks down the middle. The point of the signing ceremony is that the participants are saying, if I don't fulfill my part, I'll be cut. So it's kind of a, uh, you know, at a purely human level, Kind of a terrifying pledge. Uh, if I don't live up to my bargain, if I don't pay my debt, if I don't give your tractor back, whatever the case might be, I'm going to be cut like these animals. Kind of a serious thing. It's tragic in our country. We don't oftentimes take uh, contracts seriously. I mean, someone else will pay it. Surely Uncle Sam will pay it off. The problem with that is it dilutes the concept of contracts and it begins to dilute our understanding of this greatest contract of all time. That God is the sole signatory and participant in the signing of it. So God shows up in a smoking fire pot and flaming torch. It's a theophany of the divine presence. God is a spirit. Can't see the spirit of God. So he comes in... Uh, the fire pot and flaming torch. We know from Exodus 13, Exodus 19, it's, it's God. He's led the nation, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. Yeah. And God walks between the animals. And on that day, verse 18, made the covenant. Uh, the Hebrew text is literally to cut a covenant. Because Abraham literally cut the animals. Or to cut a covenant. We use that phrase sometimes today. I have. Hey, let's cut a deal. This is where it comes from. 
ancient, ancient Near Eastern signing ceremony. But notice the words. Let's cut a deal. If I'm faithless, you can cut me. Now, in our culture, we would perhaps get an attorney and a judge, so on and so forth, but you're going to damage me. And uh, it's very interesting that this uh, very verb, uh, but in the passive form, is uh, used of our Savior, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut and have nothing. Portending in the ancient prophet Daniel, the crucifixion of our Savior. Yes, he was upon the cross. Yes, he was pierced. Yes, he was cut by a sword. But the point is, he was cut. Why was he cut? Because in his contract, of which you and I were being represented by him as our covenant head, we couldn't deliver. And he pledges himself, Christ alone, just as in this case, as surety and guarantor of the covenant as he takes the punishment upon himself. He binds himself for uh, covenant fulfillment. In the case of Abraham, he alone ratifies the covenant because Abraham is asleep. He's in a deep sleep. Fulfillment is therefore unconditional. We oftentimes attach that word to grace, God's sovereign grace, God's unconditional grace. He alone is going to affect it because He alone is able and can fulfill what He promises. The majesty of grace. In the case of salvation and justification, one participant acting. Now there are other doctrines like sanctification where we act, uh, we, we do participate, but not in justification. It's Christ alone. So God affirms that he will make it happen because we were unable and tainted by failure. Think about the fulfillment of it in the case of our great, great Redeemer, Christ. He says, I, I, I mean, these are just, to me, earth-shattering words. Jesus says, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me Notice the Father gives to the Son all that the Father gives me. Come to me. How can he say that? Because he was cut for them. And I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing. We'll examine the, how this occurs in the New Testament in a moment. Uh, but Christ is the greater fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Really, they kind of merge together with the concept of the grace of God and the eternal covenant of our redemption. Absolutely incredible to me that he was cut because we were totally unable to affect any part of our justification 
and salvation. Furthermore, the divine actions will secure the faithfulness and the perseverance of the inaction of the sleeping Abram. And the ceremony concludes with God reaffirming the promise of sons and an expansion on the promise of the promised land. So it's not only unconditional grace, we could we could use unmerited grace. We, we did not bring our merits to the transaction. Abraham didn't wake up in the middle of the uh, anesthesia and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, I'm, I'm going to follow you and go down the line of the cut animals. Unmerited. Because our merits don't count before God who is infinite perfection. It's very difficult for uh, for us to believe that concept. Uh, because, I mean, we do a lot of things pretty well, don't we? Um, I occasionally um, uh, do something fairly well around the household. Uh, occasionally produce a Fairly decent meal. Uh, I laugh because you gotta take it in context, ladies and gentlemen. But, but none of that counts before God because He doesn't take, you did your best. He only takes perfection. So we literally bring nothing because nothing, uh, is all that we can really offer. And that's why we encapsulate it in Christ alone. And in justification, the merits of what he did, of his obedience, both active and passive obedience, is what is imputed to our account. Who affects it? Who affected the Abrahamic covenant? God alone signs it, validates it. The promises will be fulfilled because of who he is. The New Testament unmerited grace of God through Jesus Christ, uh, the great, the only Redeemer. It's, so the glory of Christ affirms His worthiness uh, to affect the covenant. Uh, turn with me if you would. I'm going to look at one event in the New Testament uh, because of time uh, that references what Christ uh, did upon the cross. Uh, in his cutting, uh, Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 1 to 7. Uh, The context is John has a vision of God's eternal dominion and supremacy. Uh, Then the vision, verse 3, shifts to a book in an illusion detailing end-time events. I believe uh, John's book in Revelation 5 uh, is an allusion to the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel uh, chapter 12 uh, in your uh, Old Testament. Uh, Daniel is uh, uh, writing of a book. Uh, verse 4, Daniel chapter 12, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. And many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase, but the book is sealed. We don't know the contents. Go down to verse 9. And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up 
until the end time. Uh, the book is a book of judgment and redemption uh, that Daniel speaks about as a prophet, uh, that uh, John as a prophet speaks about in the book of the Revelation. Well, this book is about to be unsealed, meaning that fulfillment begins. It has seven seals, perhaps an allusion to Roman wills that were sealed by seven witnesses. The greater issue uh, referencing this book is no one is worthy to open it. And John carefully documents the total inability of the entire created order. He ransacks heaven and earth for someone that's worthy to open the book and no one is found. No one is qualified. And John is visibly agitated. Look at verse 4. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. With the book forever sealed, Daniel's book, now here in the New Testament, God's purposes will be unknown and forever unrealized. There will be no vindication of God's people, no final inheritance, neither victory or triumph. And the sufferings of God's people will go for naught. It really pretends a horrendous event, and that, that's why John is uh, weeping uncontrollably. Remarkably, heaven is not concerned because heaven has the answer. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. I, I like the translation conquered. It's conquered so as to open the book and its seven seals. So that heaven has the answer. The lion is an allusion to Genesis 49.10, meaning that the Messianic king is to come from Judah in royal dignity. The root of David is another messianic title from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, promising a reconstitution of the Davidic dynasty. But the greater point of all of this is that heaven has one who is able. There's just one, and heaven's going to provide it. It describes his victory. I referenced the, the verb a moment ago, he conquered. It's in the past tense. He did something cataclysmic so as to conquer, so as to win. And I would remind you something that to me is incredibly profound as a Christian and as theologians. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does not do contingency. He doesn't say things with respect to justification and salvation and redemption Look, I'm going to do my part. I hope you do yours well enough, and maybe it'll come to pass. I don't know, but I just know I'm going to do my... God doesn't deal in that manner. Just as Abraham was put to sleep, we're asleep too. So that God is the one doing. God's going to accomplish the covenant. He did so in the passage we read from uh, Genesis. And now he's doing so here. And the greater Abraham, who is the eternal Christ. And because he conquered, he can open the book. 
Only one throughout the entire created order. But he's not a member of that party. Because spiritually speaking, he's the creator, certainly of the spiritual creation, the church, and salvation. And with respect to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, justification. I spent just a moment uh, last week looking at the Roman Catholic view, the Greek Orthodox view. Uh, they participate. We don't. We can't. We're asleep. The hope of redemption and ultimate vindication for all of God's people is tied to Christ as King Messiah. And John then describes the nature of his conquest. Verse 6, the nature, the person that he is, and what he did. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He sees a lamb slain, pretending what? The crucifixion. Standing, pretending what? Resurrection. Incredible. Historically, our vindication, salvation is here. Crucified. But the grave couldn't hold him. Rises again from the dead to conquer, to win for us as our great king. Of course, John is mixing metaphors of lion and lamb. The lion is king. The lamb is the animal of sacrifice. And John is uniting sacrifice with the majesty, the divine majesty of Christ. The eternal Son of God. The messianic king who affects redemption and justification. The theology, of course, is substitution by atonement and penal satisfaction. The Father is satisfied because He was punished. He was cut, and we go free. The grace of God. Affected by God the Father, Son, and Spirit. John says standing, he defeated death. He has seven horns and seven eyes as symbolic of his omniscience. He knows everything in one eternal moment. An omnipresence. And John's disappointment ends with the opening of the book and all that it means. Let's read a couple of texts here, verse 7. And he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase. He, he purchased for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The greater fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in a measure is here. Who accomplishes it? The Lamb. The Lion. Christ alone. And by his kingly acts and sacrifice, 
Daniel's book of end time events accomplishing the judgment and redemption of Daniel Seal's book is now open and fulfillment has started. He's saving his own. As king, he's winning the great spiritual battles for, uh, for them. He's subduing uh, the kingdom of ruin and darkness uh, so that they can be brought to faith by his divine power, protecting them, defending them, so that they cannot be deceived, limiting the power by his sovereign power to prevent his deception of the church, and they come. Fulfilling John 6, verses 37 to 39. The majesty of the only one qualified to redeem us is now set before us in open glory for us to praise and worship. And contextually, in this text, heaven erupts in praise. And you and I as Christians are to mirror what occurs in heaven and praise Him. So who is the guarantor of the covenants? You now know. Genesis 15, God alone. New covenant, or the eternal covenant of redemption. Christ alone. Or the Latin phrase, solus Christus. Alone. No other priests involved but the one high priest the gift of God. He is the guarantor. We come this morning with the peculiar privilege of partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's table. And it's for the church. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, you may not be a member of uh, Grace Bible Church, but you don't have to be. Uh, it's for those who know the Savior, uh, just a visitor and passing through town, but you belong to a church and uh, you're certain of your salvation. Uh, again, uh, it's His table, not mine. It's not the table of Grace Bible Church. It's uh, affectionately called the Lord's table. And uh, He ransoms Himself for His people to save them. Uh, and His sacrifice is worthy. Uh, you and I, uh, we, we come to faith. Uh, and uh, even that faith is a gift from God. Paul says as much. Ephesians 2, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. So that none of us can boast. I can't stand before God and say, well, God, it was my faith. <laughs> God can say, I gave it to you as a gift. It's the product of your regeneration. Dead men don't have faith. Dead men, spiritually dead, cannot exercise faith. God makes us alive, and the product is we have faith. It's incredible, the grace of God. Absolutely incredible what He does for us. He makes us alive. We believe in Him. And even our belief, our faith, is the product of uh, our new birth. And so uh, we come to... Uh, unite in a special way with our Savior. He's the host of the table as He uh, provides, uh, as we exercise faith in what He did for us, as we apprehend as much as we can 
all of the benefits of the new covenant. Uh, yes, uh, we are the sons of God. Yes, we are the forgiven sons of God. Yes, someday we're going to enter eternity, uh, everlasting joy, triumph. Yes, we will be vindicated. Benefits on and on of the great covenant of redemption. So that as I, as I pass, uh, the elements, uh, there's nothing in and of itself in the element. You're gonna eat and drink. Nothing happens physically. It's you're going beyond the element per se and all that it means. Namely, the benefits of the new covenant. The provision. Jesus came down out of heaven. Uh, to be heavenly manna, that eating Him, we will live forever. Having faith in Him, we will live forever. And we will be brought to our eternal victory in our home. It's, it's, it's oftentimes described as a gospel to the senses because we eat and drink, we taste, uh, but it's our faith that's apprehending it because there's nothing per se, in the element. There's no transmission of the grace of God in the bread and the wine. And so it's a time to uh, think about your faith and all that it means uh, and all that's secured for you and even that your faith is a gift from God. Uh, as I uh, uh, pass the bread, I ask you hold it till which time uh, everyone is served and we will partake together manifesting uh, symbolically, the unity of the church. Uh, we, we eat it once because we're one. Our Savior has made us one. Uh, but more importantly, uh, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He knew He was going to be cut for us. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Father, we're profoundly grateful for our redemption wrought by Christ and that He was cut for us and becomes a life-giving force for us because of our union with Him and His resurrection. Now bless us now, Lord, as we partake together, for we are one. He has made us one by His sovereign power. And fill us in a measure as we partake, as we by faith apprehend all the benefits of what accrues to us because of His death and resurrection, uh, that we might uh, be profoundly thankful this day and forevermore uh, for Thy kingdom's sake and for our edification in the faith uh, we ask it through the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Then our Savior, after breaking and offering the bread, uh, took the cup uh, and said to His disciples, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Uh, I do remind you very quickly, uh, in the center of the service is wine, the periphery grape juice, that each may partake in the freedom of their own particular uh, traditions and conscience.
but more importantly, to give thanks uh, that uh, his blood is the cause of our forgiveness and our acceptance uh, forever and ever. Uh, and that God in his grace would, again, make our hearts profoundly uh, full of joy and thanksgiving. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee as uh, we ought for providing our great and only Redeemer, that He alone drank the cup of judgment uh, to render satisfaction to the justice of the eternal God, that it fell upon Him in a mighty cut, and justice was satisfied. We're grateful for the provision of a perfect sacrifice uh, because we were unable and unworthy but he is able and worthy. To that we are profoundly grateful. Uh, we're thankful that knowing him, we will never be cut. And so our hearts are full of joy. And may that joy continue in the days to come. Now bless us as we partake to manifest our unity and the joy of our faith because of Christ, our only Redeemer. Amen.